listeners, and welcome to the 57th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I am so happy to be back with a real episode this week. Uh, This past month has been pretty tough, as I mentioned last week, and the next month is going to be pretty hard as well, at least physically and and probably mentally, Uh, but... I was taking care of the dogs today after getting home from work, and I was standing outside just willing them to pee faster because even though it was beautiful out, uh, all I wanted to do was get back inside and think about and write about and talk about cars. And I I don't do this for money. In fact, I I sort of do this for negative money when you think about the the time that I dump into it and the fact that I pay someone, uh, hi Jordan, to upload my scripts as blog entries every week. But it's, it's my interest, it's my hobby, my passion, and, and while it may not pay off my GTI any faster or help me upgrade to the newest Sony camera, that a7 III guys, right? Um, it pays in feeling, in satisfaction, in happiness. I, I love cars, and, and I'm at my most accomplished when I'm, I'm sharing that love, whether it's through this podcast or through writing or through video. So I'm very happy uh, this week because we have a lot to get through. So here are your top stories. Almost exactly one year ago, Ford fired CEO Mark Fields and replaced him with Jim Hackett amid uh, dissatisfaction about the company's stock price and fears that the company wasn't evolving fast enough to meet the fickle, ever-changing demands of today's consumers. As recently as January of this year, Automotive News published a story that Hackett hadn't done enough to turn the company around, and investors were still impatient to see their share prices increase. It turns out Hackett was pretty busy. As the former head of Ford's innovation unit, he's been analyzing America's and and the global car market for some while, but had been holding off on making any drastic moves. That is, until yesterday. But first, let's take a trip back in time, to an age where none of us was alive, uh, 1908. This is the year that Ford introduced the Model T, which was a terrible car, despite being the most influential car of the 20th century. The reason everyone knows the Model T is because it was the first broadly reliable, easy-to-maintain car that was affordable by a growing middle class, It defined mainstream and opened up an entirely new era in transportation to the masses. Fast forward 100 years all the way to 2008, when the average price of gas climbed to 361 per gallon and looked to head even higher. We were in the depth of a recession and nobody was buying cars. Banks were being bailed out and, as a consequence of over-reliance on gas-guzzling SUVs to generate profits, so were GM and Chrysler. Ford, however, had remortgaged its assets in 2006 and retooled its smaller, efficient vehicles, which buyers were snapping up to avoid hefty bills at the pump. Sure, they still took the government's money, since it was being handed out like candy, but they didn't need to, because their excellent small cars and sedans sustained them through the financial crisis. Just ten years later, those small cars and sedans, the life vests, during the rising tide of the recession, have turned to an anchor 
weighing down Ford's stock price as consumers abandon rational thought and return to purchasing gigantic SUVs and crossovers they don't need. Hackett's answer to the investors' pleas for greater share value? Abandon the exact kinds of vehicles that sustained Ford as one of the biggest auto manufacturers in the world. His answer? Kill the sedans. And he's not the first. Chrysler has mostly done away with its sedans, leaving the aging 300 and Charger out there just in case someone is interested in looking cool on the back of a flatbed on the way to the service department. Uh, But Ford is certainly the most extreme case. They're killing off the Fusion, the Taurus, the Fiesta, the Focus. It's a bread-and-butter entry-level vehicle. And in their place will be the Echo Sport, a compact crossover. The Bronco, a baby Bronco to fight the Wrangler, a refreshed Escape, Explorer, and Edge. The Focus will live on, sort of, only as a jacked-up hatchback akin to the Subaru Crosstrek. In fact, the only way you will be able to buy a Ford vehicle that has a trunk is with the Mustang. That or live somewhere else in the world where Ford will continue selling its low-margin vehicles. Dealers worry that this will mean that they will stop seeing first-time car buyers shopping for Fords, and, and it's a valid concern. Hackett says dealers will still have the Focus Active and the Echo Sport, but those will command at least a 20% price premium over the outgoing Focus. In the age of the declining middle class, rapidly growing debt, deep subprime borrowing, as well as auto loan terms of 7 years, 84 months becoming more common, it's absolutely clear to anyone paying attention that people are simply less able to afford cars than they have ever been. So abandoning those buyers to the used market and focusing on higher margin SUVs and crossovers is definitely a very risky move, and exactly what got Chrysler and GM in trouble in 2008. But maybe since Ford didn't get bailed out in the same way as the others, they didn't learn that lesson of diversification. Of course, things are different now. The Ford Escape has virtually the same fuel mileage as the 2006 Ford Focus, so if gas prices continue to rise as they are expected to, fewer buyers may be trading in their SUVs on fuel-sipping sedans because the gains are more minimal. And the housing market isn't a bubble ready to burst, sending everyone's finances into a tailspin. However, one might argue that the auto lending market or the higher education market are two bubbles primed to burst in the near future, and that means uh, and that mass migration to cities could uh, drive interest in more compact vehicles, more well suited to city dwelling, like hatchbacks. In either case, no investment portfolio manager has ever gotten rich by telling investors not to diversify. And I think it's foolish to do so with automotive lineups as well. So what's, what's there to gain here for Ford? While they forsake the entry level and the low income buyers, despite not remotely being a premium brand, Ford will satisfy their investors by cutting almost $26 billion in operating costs from producing lower margin vehicles and capitalizing on current sales trends. But let's not forget that those same trends stem from the whims of consumers who are fickle as hell and with a possible trade war looming, potentially increasing the costs of virtually everything, Ford better hope that their investors 
aren't as fickle if SUVs start going out of style again. On the last show before the uh, unplanned hiatus, I covered the fatal Uber crash that killed a woman in Arizona. Since that tragic story, there have been several developments for Uber and its autonomous tech program that are probably worth touching on in, in a top story here. Um, first, Arizona Governor Douglas Ducey suddenly decided that his first priority is public safety and sent a letter to Uber suspending their license to test and operate autonomous vehicles in the state. One might argue that giving unregulated, unmonitored rights to a company hurtling three-ton death machines around public roads with other drivers and unpredictable pedestrians was not placing public safety first, but hey, we all make mistakes, right? Just some of our mistakes don't wind up with people dying. Uber voluntarily suspended its programs in California, Pittsburgh, and Toronto as well, which is a good PR move since it probably wouldn't be voluntary for too long. Shortly after the incident, Uber's partners and suppliers were quick to wash their hands of responsibility for the incident, prompting, uh, promptly throwing the ride-sharing business under the bus. First, Mobileye, the manufacturer of the LiDAR system, insisted that its cameras would undoubtedly have seen the pedestrian, but that it was Uber's software responsible for interpreting what the camera sees and computing and corresponding input into the car's drive that was to blame. A representative for Aptive PLC, the supplier who provides the radar system technologies for Volvo, chirped up that uh, all of the XC90's safety systems that it comes with from the factory had been turned off and that the emergency braking system might have enabled the car to stop or at least slow before the impact. Finally, for Uber, um, what I expected to be a prolonged battle in the courts over liability and one that might set a precedent for how future cases were handled, uh, turned out to be a very quick settlement. Uh, Terms of the settlement were not disclosed, and the attorney for the family of the deceased insisted that her daughter would have no further public comment. Um, That they settled the matter in less than a month after the fatality really goes to show how aggressive Uber must have been in trying to sweep this matter under the rug. Um, While the news cycle does tend to bounce from outrage to outrage, I think those of us with a deep interest in the automotive sector will probably have longer memories. Um, Really, the only good to come from this is that everyone is now taking a very serious look at just how safe it is to publicly test technology in its infancy. Finally this week, Tesla, the company that generates more headlines and top stories than actual motor vehicles, uh, despite claiming to be a car company. Um, Last time I covered the company, major shareholders had just approved a super unbelievable compensation package for CEO Elon Musk tied to the company's total market value rather than numbers of vehicles produced or Model 3 orders satisfied or JD Power scores or any number of other metrics by which a car company may actually be adjudged to be a success. Um, Just like in Ford's case earlier, Tesla's sole focus is on pleasing the shareholders, and it really shows. Uh, Problem for Elon and Tesla is the hype machine eventually runs out of gas, and the company valued more highly than Ford, GM, Fiat, Chrysler, and any number of actual car companies 
will have to face the music eventually for perpetually failing to meet the goals it outlines for itself. And that's a problem when you consistently set outrageous goals that artificially inflate your stock price. Uh, that face the music time may be coming soon because there have been several issues in the past few weeks that deserve mention. First, another fatality. Uh, this is Tesla's third in which Autopilot was engaged when the death occurred, and the preliminary investigation by a law firm representing the deceased's family has decided that Tesla's Autopilot misread lanes in the road and drove the man straight into a median where the car burst into flames and killed the driver. Uh, Tesla insists that the crash is the driver's fault because its system isn't perfect and requires drivers to pay attention to the road ahead and provide input when prompted, which the driver apparently um, was prompted and ignored. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board admonished Tesla for releasing details about the crash before its investigation was complete and actually kicked them out of the investigation process. And yes, this is the second story in a row that involves someone dying because a technology company deployed a system to the public before it was ready. Simultaneously, Tesla was busy recalling 123,000 early Model S's because of power steering bolt failures that would render the car still drivable but requiring considerably more effort. Ultimately, not a huge deal. Uh, while it's hardly rare for a, a car company to issue a recall, it's coinciding with reports about the Model 3 needing considerable rework after coming off the assembly line paints a pretty poor picture of the company's quality control. Uh, speaking of the Model 3, production has been shut down twice so far this year to address bottlenecks, preventing the factory from meeting production goals. Um, their Q in their Q1 investor call, Tesla reported 2,000 Model 3s rolling off the line the last week before the earnings call, which represents a significant jump over the just 1,200 observed in the weeks prior, but remains 20% short of the 2,500 uh, model goal Elon set for the company in January. In response to inquiries about the delays, Musk declared that there were no delays, but that deliveries were just experiencing a time shift which is basically a way of invoking some quantum leap Doctor Who bullshit to try to explain away your company's failure. And remember, the 2500 goal was the reforecast of a reforecasted forecast. Uh, in addition to the shutdowns to improve efficiencies, Tesla is adding a third shift to their Fremont factory, meaning cars will be produced 24-7 in order to start reaching production goals more effectively. Of course, another shift means greater potential for labor issues, and Tesla has had plenty of those recently, with the Center for Investigative Reporting uh, uh, reporting that Tesla has been under-reporting uh, worker injuries on legally mandated reports to make the company's safety record appear better than it is. Um, the company or the center's magazine reveal interviewed more than three dozen current and former employees, including ex safety personnel and have previously been nominated for Pulitzer prizes in the for the quality and reliability of the reporting Tesla's response to, uh, what aired in the reveal magazine lies, all lies. In fact, the center is an extremist organization and pawn being used by the United Auto Workers Union to try to influence workers against joining. 
which Tesla is known to be against, having reportedly fired 700 workers for their pro-union sentiments last fall. And this is one of the many, only one of the many salvos that Tesla or Musk have launched at news outlets for accurately reporting the news. A recent Economist article suggesting Tesla would have to raise $2.5 to $3 billion this year to meet production goals prompted a tweet from Musk calling The Economist boring and replying that the car company would be profitable in the second half of this year, a claim viewed as dubious by many actual economists who sort of know what they're talking about, unlike a certain someone. Um, As a result of all these issues, Tesla's stock value has been dropping, and although he claims that he'd forego his salary in order to see the company thrive, it's not hard to see how a $52 billion carrot dangling in front of you might motivate you to work towards it. The problem is, when your success metric is as squishy as shareholder value, which is based on perception rather than substance, oftentimes, your focus is not really on safety, or fair worker representation, or quality, or even human life. It's based on what people think of you and your future potential. And all the talking in the world isn't going to matter if you can't do the walking. And right now, Tesla is still at a crawl. In headlines this week, one of the primary questions facing the electric vehicle industry is what happens to the lithium-ion batteries after the vehicle has either crashed or met the end of its useful life? Lithium-ion batteries are far more impressive than their nickel-metal hydride predecessors, but after 10,000 cycles or so, they will start to see some capacity loss due to general wear and tear and degradation. You'll know from having a cell phone that batteries don't last forever, but Nissan is preparing for the future by partnering with a company called 4R Energy Corporation. They're recycling used Nissan Leaf batteries in streetlights, which utilize a combination of solar generation and storage in the former Leaf battery cells to provide illumination to roads unserved by the electrical grid. They're starting this program in Nami, Japan, which was hit hard and is still recovering from the 2011 Tohoku earthquake. Um, Pilots are under testing now, and the company plans to install lights throughout the town later this year. One can see this being especially useful in other disaster zones like Puerto Rico after Maria, or New York after Sandy, or the city of New Orleans after a weekend night. Um, If you've ever wanted to drive a used Lincoln, but the thought of owning one just put you off too much, there's great news. The company is launching or following the footsteps of Volvo, Cadillac, and Porsche and offering a subscription service. No, not for the new Continental or Navigator or upcoming Aviator, for its used cars. That means you can pay just over $400 a month to drive New York's finest fleet taxi vehicle, the MKX. Uh, If that price doesn't sound appealing, consider that the price also pays for insurance, maintenance, warranty, and the ability to swap into the slightly smaller but no more enjoyable MKC at any time. If that still doesn't sound appealing, then consider yourself in the same boat as me. Um, April 2nd was the first day of self-driving cars could legally hit the roads in California. Being home to more than 50 companies testing autonomous systems, it was slated to be a truly historic day for the state. 
and uh, except for only one company applied for a permit. So on the first day, zero self-driving cars hit the road. The timing perhaps was not excellent coming on the heels of Uber's fatal wreck and the general cringing of other companies and people as they look to perfect technology before pushing it out to the public. Nevertheless, it's a, it's a good sign that California is regulating it and that companies were honest enough with their self-assessments that nobody is putting unsafe hardware out on the streets. Next up, thumbs. Thumbs are great. They're one of the best things about being human and allow us to grab things and compete in sports like baseball and tennis without accidentally flinging rackets and bats everywhere. Uh, we all like our thumbs, and so does BMW, but perhaps not in the right way. Uh, according to a lawsuit filed by in New York, a software developer named Godwin Boateng was waiting for a friend, posted up with his hand on the pillar of his front driver's door, acting casual, as you do. Uh, this BMW X5, however, was equipped with the company's soft-closing automatic doors, unfortunately abbreviated SCAD, uh, which casually closed on Godwin's thumb, causing it to then separate from his body. Um, after taking his BMW and his thumb to the hospitals, or hospital, uh, doctors were unable to attach the latter, uh, which has caused Godwin considerable consternation about the former, uh, leading to the lawsuit alleging BMW knew that the sensors in the SCAD system were faulty and didn't do anything to fix them. Uh, I don't have to tell you listeners that regardless of what your car features, it's not a great idea to dangle any phalanges in places where there's even the possibility that they may be involuntarily amputated. Nor was I aware that BMW even had a feature that would close the doors on you, which is slightly creepy. In any case, who's got two thumbs and chose the right German car? This guy! Um, I don't have a pool. Uh, mostly because I'm lazy and the maintenance sounds absolutely dreadful. But if I did and I didn't have to work on a Tuesday afternoon, I'd totally take a quick splash to unwind. Um, but I don't think that's what was planned earlier this month when a Florida resident <laughs> left her car without placing it in park, causing the vehicle to roll into a nearby neighbor's pool. Making matters worse, her husband and daughter were inside and were subjected to an unexpected plunging. Uh, they both made it out safely, fortunately, but the same cannot be said for the bright blue Civic, which looked positively serene at the bottom of that pool. Um, the jokes here are obvious. Uh, gives a whole new meaning to carpool. Uh, go for a drive, not a dive. Uh, for sale with slight water damage. Uh, uh, please feel free to write your own, as I enjoy not picking leaves out of a pool. Big cats are noble creatures, and that's probably why Jaguar chose one as its mascot. Even Mercury had the Cougar, which started out as a noble muscle car and developed into something, well, uh, bad. Uh, but every once in a while, we're reminded that big cats are essentially just gigantic versions of the little assholes who go around knocking cups off countertops and destroying the legs of couches in homes across the world. Uh, recently, wildlife photographer Peter Heiston was touring the Serengeti National Park in Tanzania when he paused in his Land Rover for lunch while observing a group of cheetahs. Um, as they are wont, one of the curious cats approached and then jumped into Heiston's car, sampling the fine interior headrests and gaining a commanding view of the surrounding plains. Heiston did the exact opposite of what you see on most YouTube fail videos and remained calm, 
respected the animal's space, and allowed it to leave once it inevitably got bored. Uh, next time the cat pukes on my pillow, I'm going to tell myself, at least it didn't devour my interior. If you want to have a car with a ridiculously high top speed that you'll never achieve on public roads, or basically anywhere but an airstrip or salt flat, you have several very expensive cars to select from. The McLaren P1, the LaFerrari, the Lamborghini Aventador, you get it. Or you could just go get a Nissan Rogue Sport and beat all of these, because that's just what some English guys did. Uh, British speed shop Severn Valley Motorsports made some slight tweaks to their Nissan, which is for sale in Europe as the awkwardly named Qashqai, and hit a blistering 237 miles per hour, making it the world's fastest SUV, although unofficially because it didn't make two runs in opposing directions in front of a Guinness judge. Uh, what sort of tweaks did they have to make, you ask? Well, actually, quite big tweaks. Uh, they threw out the absolute shit 2.5-liter 4 NCVT and tucked in the 3.8-liter twin-turbo V6 from the Nissan GTR, lowered it and provided a bunch of bespoke bodywork to streamline the otherwise boxy body, uh, so, while sure, this is neat and it's great that people are having fun in Nissan Rogues, this does absolutely not change my opinion that Nissan Rogues are cars for people who would rather be doing anything but driving. Now let's take a look at some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless brand new. you might see me in my whip with my head pumping my it's been just about four weeks since our last regular episode, uh, with only the New York and Beijing motor shows occurring in that time span, but holy hell have we seen a lot of new cars. So it's not just one long new car regurgitation. I'm going to split this up a bit and focus on the cars from New York in brief this week and then from Beijing next week, along with a few standouts announced separately along the way. So here we go. Um, the new Honda Insight was officially unveiled in New York to very little fanfare or excitement. Uh, remember, this is basically the Civic Hybrid rebranded with a new name or uh, for little ostensible reason. Um, rather than being the cheapest possible hybrid you can buy as it used to be, the new Insight is going upmarket and Honda is slotting it in between the Civic and the Accords prices. Based on the Accord's current sales, or lack thereof, I think Honda might struggle a little bit with this guy. Uh, Mercedes unwrapped the new AMG C63, which uses a twin-turbo V8 to turn out a somewhat surprisingly modest 470 horsepower. Not that that number is small. It's more than the Camaro, but barely, and the Camaro is naturally aspirated. For having twin turbos, you know this car is capable of more, and there will undoubtedly be some sort of AMG black version eventually. Uh, I, I secretly love Mercedes-AMG cars because they are just, like, mental, and not balanced and precise like BMW's M cars. They just shred tires, and it adds a, a measure of excitement to the drive. But for this car, wait for the AMG black. Uh, as recently as last year, Volkswagen was under a lot of pressure for not having a large three-row SUV, so um, they did the right thing and came out with the Atlas. Now what they're they're <laughs> now they're doing what every great German car company seems to be doing, and making as many versions of each of their cars as possible to fill niches that didn't previously exist. As such, now we've got the VW Atlas Cross, 
which is a five-seat version of a seven-seat SUV they just came out with last year. And if you're thinking, well, isn't that just what the new Touareg is supposed to be? Yes. Yes, it is. Toyota isn't resting on its laurels with the RAV4, which, outside of pickups, is the best-selling vehicle in America. In New York, they unveiled the new model for 2019, which takes the old model, uh, roots around on the dash for a little while until it finds the bitch knob and then cranks that shit up to 11. Uh, the new car looks significantly beefier and squared off in the sort of swoopy current model and sits on Toyota's new and excellent TNGA or Tinga platform that also underpins the Camry. Uh, the new RAV4 is wider but shorter and lower and is apparently better to drive because of the new dimensions and architecture. It'll also come with a four-cylinder and hybrid powertrains with the latter potentially capable of achieving 70 miles per gallon. And at that rate, who, who needs a Prius? Um, Nissan also unveiled the new bread-and-butter car, the 2019 Altima, which, is, uh, which I might just normally skip over. But I drove an Altima 3.5 SR to Kansas and back recently and actually enjoyed it quite a bit, um, mostly because of the V6. Sadly, that engine is gone, uh, replaced with a less powerful Turbo 4, but it's the neat variable compression engine that changes piston stroke to either give better fuel economy or more power, so that's neat. Uh, problem is, it'll still be paired with the CVT, which, of course, stands for Continuously Variable Tragedy or something. Um, we also got a new Hyundai Tucson, which I might also normally just skip over. Uh, there was also the new Kia K900 for drivers who want a luxury sedan but don't care about the luxury brand. But um, uh, I'm just I'm just getting word from the newsroom that that is in fact zero buyers, uh, not a not a single one. Uh, Subaru unveiled a new Forester for next year, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that they hadn't. Um, Subaru pulled a neat trick here, though, <clears throat> whereas other car companies will refresh a car to disguise the fact that they haven't made any substantial changes to it, Subaru has actually moved the Forester to a completely new global platform chassis and managed to tweak the styling so subtly that buyers might not be able to identify it as an actually new car. So they sort of pulled a 180 there. And to some extent, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? And the Forester is selling, uh, mostly despite its beigeness. Um... There was also a new Audi RS5 Sportback, which is basically just a faster version of the S5 Sportback, which is basically just a faster version of the A5 Sportback, which is basically just a four-door version of the A5 Coupe, and I wish the Germans would knock this shit off with this Russian nesting doll system of car models. <sighs> uh, the Maserati Levante Trofeo was also unveiled, which uses a Ferrari-sourced 3.5 or 3.8-liter V8, spitting out what I'm sure is a delightful-sounding 590 horsepower right up until the time that the SUV either catches itself on fire or kicks into limp home mode because you decided to turn on the air conditioning or something. Um, it's honestly pretty good-looking, kind of like a, a Quattroporte and a Porsche Cayenne mated uh, in a consensual sort of way. Uh, we also got a, a couple of cool concepts in New York, which I think we've been largely missing from auto shows recently. Uh, the first was the Volkswagen Atlas Tanoke, which is a pickup truck um, from Volkswagen, a Volkswagen pickup. Uh, that concept 
it's fairly foreign to us here, but it isn't that weird. Volkswagen makes the Amarac pickup and sells it across the rest of the world. Uh, the Atlas Ten Oak has some really neat features that uh, could further shake up the somewhat uncrowded pickup market in a similar way to the Honda Ridgeline, which has been selling really well. Uh, I'm hoping VW pulls the trigger on this guy because it's pretty neat looking. Um, a slightly less realistic concept was the Genesis Essentia concept, which is probably the best looking car at the show. Um, it looked to me like what a futuristic Mazda RX-7 might be, with the sort of domed glass greenhouse and smooth sweeping lines. Hell, it even had a triangular grille that one might think was referencing the rotary engines of Mazdas of years gone by. Uh, Genesis calls the design philosophy elegant decluttering, which is a phrase I am now going to use every day of my life when someone asks me how I want something done. Ah, uh, well, the sandwich is fine, but it could use some elegant decluttering. If you like Jags, and who doesn't, and you like crossovers, who doesn't, uh, there's good news for you this week. Jag has sprinkled some special sauce on its F-Pace mid-sized crossover and come out with the F-Pace SVR, which has a supercharged 5-liter V8 pumping out an almost 550 horsepower to all four wheels. Uh, Jag's going after the Macan Turbo, but sort of bringing a, a gun to the knife fight since it boasts more than 100 more horsepower than its German rival. Uh, it's not just all power either. They've addressed the suspension to firm it up and improve handling, which it needs because it's a freaking top-heavy SUV with more power than a freaking Ferrari F430 got less than a decade ago. Excessive? Yes. Do I want one? Also, yes. Um, in other Jag news, the company has teamed up with Waymo, uh, Google's self-driving company, to build driverless iPace compact electric crossovers. Um, Waymo is slated to buy 20,000 of them, which is a tremendous amount of cars, and will complement their existing fleet of Chrysler Pacificas. Waymo is planning to introduce the first all-self-driving ride-sharing service later this year, expanding to provide 1 million driverless journeys a day by 2020. Based on the current uh, sentiment regarding autonomous vehicles, uh, good luck with that, guys. Um, you've heard about the Polestar 1 on this show before, so you'll remember Polestar. You know, it's that now independent company that used to be Volvo's own tuning arm that unfortunately has a name like a video sharing website for strippers. Um, anyway, we learned some new things about their first car, which is basically a carbon fiber coupe version of the S90 sedan. Uh, we learned it will have 600 horsepower and be able to go 93 miles on electric-only power before the gas motor kicks in. It will strangely have a slightly rear-biased weight distribution, despite being a front-engine car. Um, it, we also learned it'll cost $155,000, which is an incredibly high amount of money, putting it on par with the likes of the AMG GT, Mercedes S-Class Coupe, and Porsche 911 Turbo, despite being a kind of not-Volvo um, it's also going to be available via subscription if you like to not own things, but if the choice is either subscribing or paying a ridiculous amount, I can see why folks might cho choose the former. Uh, speaking of not Volvos, Lincoln Co., uh, not to be confused, but will totally be confused with Lincoln cars, um, have introduced their second model, the 2. 
this come a- comes after the Chinese company's first model, and I'll bet you can guess what that was called. Uh, yes, the one, which was based on Volvo's diminutive XC40, has been squished down even smaller to form the two, making it an even more compact, compact crossover. Um, we know next to nothing about either of these cars. Other than that, they'll be electrified in some way or another, and only for sale via subscription service starting in China, then moving to Europe and the U.S. When? Who knows? Um, But they'll eventually be joined by a third model, and I'll give you one guess as to its name. That's about it this week. Uh, Instead of a call to action, I have a heartwarming story out of Michigan where a desperate man climbed over a highway barrier and was preparing to jump to his death uh, fortunately for him, his chosen location was a short distance from the Michigan from a Michigan State Police office, who responded quickly and effectively. While some officers pleaded with the man, others shut down the freeway below, only allowing through 14 tractor trailers, who voluntarily lined up below the overpass to act as a sort of net to catch the man if he did end up jumping. Granted, the top of an 18-wheeler isn't all that soft. It is a hell of a lot softer and a lot closer than the concrete pavement below. Um, Photographers got a really neat shot of all the trucks lined up while the police negotiated with the man, apparently for hours. They did end up able to get him to climb down and seek help. But uh, kudos to the dozens of people who took time out of their day to help this man at his own wit's end. Um, Depression and suicide are really poorly understood and, and sadly underserved in this country. And it it made me very happy to see the outpouring of support for someone in need. On that positive note, I'll thank you for listening, and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Um, Although I know you got a taste of it last week in my rental review roundup, I just want to remind you what a wonderful, beautiful, terrible-to-drive-everyday car the V8 Camaro is, especially now that it's finally Camaro season outside, unlike the snowy hellscape that I had to drive it in. Um, This specific model is the SS, uh, which maintains the same engine in 2019 with the the refresh, uh, which we'll talk more about next week. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. (laughs) 